I'm Dr. Howard Petroff, the Assistant Medical Director for the Toronto Raptors Basketball Club, and you're listening to the Big O Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, for another episode of the Big O Podcast. Today, I am joined by Toronto Raptors Assistant Medical Director and a man who once delivered a baby mid-flight in an air ambulance, Dr. Howard Petrov. Doc, how are you doing today? I'm great, thank you. And how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. So I said before we started the podcast, I had reached out to your son, Matt, a friend of mine, and asked for a little bit of insight. And the first story that he sort of told me was, you know, one of these cool stories that my dad sort of has is that he once delivered a baby mid-flight in an air ambulance going from uh, a reserve to a hospital. What was that experience like for you, you know, bringing a child into this world, you know, 30,000 feet above the ground? Well, well, uh, first of all, it wasn't 30,000 feet above the ground. Uh, you know, we, we weren't flying in jets. It was, it was an air ambulance. So, you know, maybe we're, you know, 10,000 feet or so. But it, it actually was a very interesting event. Like, I, I was actually a, a medical resident at the time. And part of my residency involved going up to an, an underserviced community. And the community I was uh, assigned to was Sioux Lookout in Northern Ontario. And part of the Sioux Lookout experience was actually going up to some of the reserves uh, further up uh, to help uh, provide, you know, care to the Indigenous communities. And so there was one night where I was in, I was actually in Sioux Lookout and you're on call with the air ambulance in case somebody, you know, has to be transported from uh, one one of the reserves down to Sioux Lookout, and we got a call that a lady had gone into labor. The uh, up at that time up in northern Ontario, they would try and transport these individuals down to Sioux Lookout before they go into labor, because you have all the services available in Sioux Lookout, um, some of which aren't obviously available in some of the smaller communities, and so. As it turns out, this one individual went into labor a little bit earlier than expected. So as soon as we got the call to go up, um, we we flew up there and uh, literally everything was nice and stable to uh, uh, as we were starting to transport down. And then halfway through the flight, you know, we get that call, I have to push. And then, yeah. It, it, it was it was a little bit challenging because you you literally are in a in a very tight environment. Now, part of anything that you do involves preparation, and so knowing that we were transporting, uh, you know, a pregnant lady with the potential for having to deliver en route, although not planning that it's going to happen, uh, there actually were a couple of nurses that were stationed you know, at the nursing station in this smaller community. And one of them came down to Sioux Lookout on the plane. So we had an incubator for the baby and everything like that. The only challenge was that, in fact, there were three nurses up in, up in the community at the time, uh, two junior ones and a, a more of a senior nurse. Unfortunately, the senior nurse did not have the skills that the junior, junior nurses had because they were actually 
NICU nurses from SickKids. Oh, wow. And, and I really could have used their help on that flight. <laughs> but, you know, needless to say, it was a happy ending because mother and baby both did really, really well. And, yeah, I, I, I gained a little bit of a reputation up there for that flight. <laughs> <laughs> I listen, I can't imagine, you know, going having dinner with friends or colleagues and everyone's so, sort of sharing their stories. I have to imagine that's like the the ace in the hole. That's got to be one of the top stories that you could probably share, you know, especially as you're going through the early parts of your medical career. So, uh always good, always fun. Um very interesting, but not the most interesting thing about you. I mean, I let off the top with it. You are the uh, assistant medical director for the Toronto Raptors and for someone who doesn't practice sports medicine, you know, how did you find yourself working for your hometown NBA team? Well, that was a, um, that, that too was, um, it happened by chance. Um, my, my background is actually family medicine and emergency medicine. So I, I've been a, or I had at that time, I was a practicing emergency physician part-time and working in, in a community family practice part-time. And so the, going back, I guess it was, it's about 15 years ago. Uh, the team was in a little bit of transition. Uh, and there, all, there always is transition that occurs with any of these sports teams, both obviously with coaching staff, with management, um, you, know, you know, physicians, trainers, everything like that. And so there was a transition occurring with the team at that point in time. And so as it turns out, I had bumped into, this is actually uh, a funny story. I, I bumped into uh, the head physician at, at a movie. Uh, just happened. I've, I've known him for a long time, uh, but you know, working for, for a sports team never was what I had ever envisioned doing. So I'm at a movie and I didn't know anything of what was going on, transition with the team, anything like that. And so uh, we, I come out of the movie. I went, I went with my other son to the movie and a friend of his. And they, I think they were 10 years old at the time. And they went and we saw like James Bond or, or Mission Impossible, like some sort of testosterone-driven uh, movie. You know, and I gave them nothing but you know, you know, soda pop and candy. They were <laughs> wired. They were absolutely wired on, on, on sugar uh, coming out of the movie. Anyways, so we bumped into uh, the other the other physician, and he was there with his wife, and they were coming out of another movie, and so we were stopping and talking, and so you know the, my colleague you know said to the kids you know so what did you see and of course the boys you know they said oh we saw you know James Bond it was shoot him up whatever it, it was wild <laughs> like, they're talking a mile a minute, and and my my son's friend who probably was like three foot nothing in, in size, a tiny, but had a mind like you wouldn't believe. So he, he, he looks, you know, so he looks at my colleague, he goes, well, what movie did you see? And my colleague who was there with his wife, you know, kind of sheepishly goes, well, we saw it like driving this Daisy. <laughs> anyway, so this little kid looks at him and goes, you know, you're right. Your wife really runs the show, doesn't she? <laughs> That's that's for anyone who's married. That is that is the best piece of an early advice that you could ever exactly. Sort of get. And and this kid was ten years old. So anyway, so the what what happened actually was I'm sure um, my colleague was you know looking for some support 
uh, for the team. Um, I wouldn't have been the number one person on his radar, but I also knew his wife and she had mentioned to him, well, why don't you, why don't you speak to Howard and see if he'd be interested in helping? And so the next day he called me up and asked me um, if I'd be actually interested in helping him. And I kind of said, I said, no, uh, I'm actually not. I'm not, you know, working with professional athletes isn't what I envision doing. I go, and more importantly, I'm not a sports medicine physician. I said, I understand bones and joints and stuff like that, but I'm not a sports medicine physician. He goes, well, I'm actually looking for somebody who's got a primary care background and emergency medicine because the support I need is to help with the emergency preparations and the general examinations. Um, he said at the time that, um, uh, he said at the time, you know, listen, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I think I'm pretty good at bones and joints. We have a full training staff with, you know, athletic trainers and physiotherapists and other professionals. He goes, I need this niche of somebody who can actually uh, help me with the, with the medical aspect. And I said to him, okay, well, you know, he convinced me and I said, okay, well, I'll help you out this year, but yeah, I don't know if I'm going to, you know, I don't know if I'll last beyond that. Well, that was 15 years ago. It's been, it's actually been a very good partnership. Great to just sort of fall into that luckily at a movie. And then as you said, you know, like 15, 16 years later, you're still part of the Raptors medical team. What was your fandom like? as a you know casual basketball fan like what did what would what were you like going into okay i'm gonna work for one year with this professional basketball team and then you know has your fandom is increased over the years to feel like more of a family with some of these players and their families yeah well actually excellent question i when i started i actually I'd say I was a basketball fan in that it was re- it really was casual. I, I knew, you know, you knew Magic Johnson, you knew Larry Bird, you saw these teams. I, I you know, I, I knew uh, Vince Carter. Like I knew certain certain players, right. but I, I couldn't have named all the players on the team before I got there. Um, it just wasn't my. I wasn't that big of a basketball fan. Um, I didn't. I didn't really understand the game, and and in essence, that was a good thing because I didn't go in expecting to know everything. I I actually uh, uh, knew very little, um, and over time, I, I have to tell you, you know, the game is just unbelievable. It really is. Like the, the these guys, they are athletes. They are so uh, so dedicated uh, to their profession. Um, they work hard. It is, and while while people think of it as a glamorous life, um, I got to tell you, it's it's tough. It really is. These guys, they're under a lot of pressure. Um, you you know, you're you're playing a game. You're then flying to the next city, possibly playing the next night. Um, it's exhausting. It really is. Um, but you know we're fortunate. We have the people that I've been exposed to have been amazing. It, it really it, it's been a tremendous experience because you meet people from all different walks of life, um, international, uh, you know, from multiple countries around the world. Um, you know, Canada, U.S. obviously, and so uh, that part really 
has been tremendous because you make a lot of friends from all across the continent and you learn a lot. You really do. I want to come back to what you were talking about when you spoke about the toughness of being a professional athlete, because sometimes I feel we get caught up with, you know, they get paid this large sum of salary. They're on TV. They've got like one of these greatest, you know, gigs out there. They're playing sports for, you know, a profession and for a career, but we sometimes forget that they're just regular human beings. And I want to come back when we talk a little bit about the the NBA bubble mm-hmm. and the effect that it has had on some of these NBA players, as well as just COVID-19, um, because it has had an astronomical impact. And sometimes we as fans can be a little bit unfair because we hold them in such high esteem. We expect things that we don't expect of just our, you know, our friend, our family, people that we know because they're professional athletes. We think that all of a sudden they're above and, and, and beyond us. And that's so unfair. And we've sort of seen it a little bit of an example about that. But I want to talk a little bit about some of the highlights, or at least the early highlights of a very storied medical career that you have had. And working for the Toronto Raptors has afforded you some pretty cool opportunities, uh, such as sharing the Larry OB or the Larry O'Brien trophy with the, for the uninitiated, that would be the trophy that NBA champions get. The Toronto Raptors won the NBA championship in 2019. You actually were able to share that with the medical staff at Mount Sinai uh, in Toronto, where you got to share it with uh, doctors, physicians, researchers, and other medical staff there. But I have to ask you, what was cooler getting to hoist that NBA championship yourself and be around it and touch it or partying with Drake and the rest of the Toronto Raptors in Las Vegas in the VIP section? Um, uh, (laughs) Well, uh, to be honest with you, uh, probably having the opportunity to share the trophy with my friends and colleagues by far that, 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 was the most tremendous uh, feeling. Um, Vegas after the after we won is um, uh, you know Vegas was was an experience, but you have to understand, okay? You know, the players are your generation. Sure, I'm a generation older, right? And so. Um, when, when we go out, we don't hang out with the guy, with the players, right? I mean, uh, I'm like their parent. It, it's like, <laughs> are you going out and are you going, are you going to a club with your father? No. Um, it, being there and, ex- and experiencing the excitement after we won, that was unbelievable. But um, it definitely, uh, it definitely uh, wasn't my environment. To be in to be in one of those clubs, if you um, what what what's the song? One of these things is not like the others. Right. <laughs> so um, you know, I definitely uh, like the the everybody who was in the club that night. You know, obviously, uh, were were the age of my kids, and as much as I enjoy being with my kids, I also know when I'm not welcome. <laughs> so, but that that was really you have to understand that that winning that championship was just it was off the charts. Like I mean, um out of 
for all those years of hard work and everything. And think of all the athletes who played their whole careers and have never won the championship. There are a lot of people out there. And you realize just how difficult it is to get to that level, to get to that, to win that final game. It is, it is so, so hard. And it takes dedication, not just of the players, but the staff, the coaches, the, you know, the, the, the training staff, the, you know, all the traveling party there. It really is a team effort. And you can't forget all the, all the people that you don't hear about that are involved in the organizations, whether it's the media people, the security people, heck at the arena, the, you know, you know, the ushers, you know, like all of these people, they're part of the team. They, they, they bring something to the table all the time. And so it was really, um, it was a tremendous experience to be able to, uh, to celebrate like that. And obviously the parade in Toronto was just, it was unbelievable. Um, but you realize number one, um, we, you have leadership that has to uh, make decisions, very difficult decisions in order to try and move ahead. And remember there were a lot, there were a lot of critics before we won the championship. Right. Um, but, you know, you know, our president and GM, both of them had to make a very difficult decision, you know, trading away arguably one of the most popular players in Toronto history, right. In DeMar. Um, and we got, you know, Kawhi came back. Uh, in the trade, you know, to make that trade was, was, you know, really difficult. Okay. And then everybody, the chemistry had to develop, but uh, that year there was just, there was a different approach right from the, right from the get go. And you really have to give a lot of credit to all of the staff that were involved. And again, I'm saying all of the staff because it truly is a team effort, the front office, you know, the scouts, everybody did their jobs. And it really um, obviously came to fruition. And remember that it's not just one year. That is built on prior years as well. So there were others who weren't necessarily part of the organization last year, but it also set the foundation years prior. So, um, yeah, but... Uh, one of the reasons why I took the trophy to Mount Sinai, uh, it was really important to me. Number one, um, I had worked there for, and I still am on staff there, but I was part of the emergency department there for 20 years. They support us tremendously amongst others within the city, but Mount Sinai uh, supports us tremendously with the team when, when we need uh, you know, emergency care, uh, whether we need certain testing, things like that, consultation, uh, they're, they're, they've been tremendous to us. So being able to bring the trophy there and let others enjoy it, um, really, because, you know, I had, I had the trophy. To me, it was, wow, this is great. But to others who won't get that chance to be that close to it, just there was a lineup that we were there. I was there for, I think five, six hours and um, it just didn't stop. You know, people were just coming for a photo with it. You, you could see the joy in their face. Like it really, it really was very special. Um, 
And then I also, I also took it, I also work at another hospital in the east end of the city. Uh, it's, it's now part of uh, uh, Lake Ridge Health, but at the time was Rouge Valley Health System. It's a, a smaller community facility called Ajax Pickering. And, you know, so I took, I took the trophy there because I've been working there for 30 years. And these are, these are my colleagues who um, helped me with my patients. And I brought the trophy there unannounced. I just showed up one day. I said, brought it into the doctor's lounge. Well, word got out in the hospital. And again, the same thing. People were just coming around you know, to, to take a photo with it. And that, you know, being able to share it like that was really, was really special. Now, there are two things I, I want to unpack from what you just said. Number one, very quickly, we all know that the Stanley Cup has like a personal bodyguard. They wear gloves. It follows the Stanley Cup wherever it goes. Does the Larry O'Brien trophy have someone that's sort of dedicated for watching it uh, when, you know, it's going out and visiting hospitals or going with players or going to events? Um, I get a... I guess the person who has it is the, is the person who's responsible for it. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't have any security with me. Actually, I shouldn't say that because when, uh, when I brought it to Mount Sinai, um, they actually had security there because okay. uh, obviously there were a lot of people coming through. So there, there was security. When I brought it to the community hospital, it really was me. And, um, you know, I, you know, when, when they held the trophy, it was like, don't drop it. Just don't <laughs> drop it. Right? I cannot imagine having that sort of responsibility and just, you know, being very, very careful with not dropping the merchandise. Right. Right. And, and then of course, you know, like, I mean, you know, being able to, to, to share it with my family and friends that, that, you know, of course, because they've been along the journey right from, right from the beginning. And, and they know, they know how much work is involved, uh, supporting the team and the demands time-wise. And so for them to actually be able to celebrate the exact same way was really, you know, it was pretty special. I'm sure everyone had a great time. I got to see photos. Matt was with the trophy and some of our, uh, our, our camp friends. So yeah. obviously very good. You never know when you're going to get another opportunity to be able to, to do something exactly. like that. Um, but something else I wanted to unpack that you mentioned and not going into specifics, but one of the the major things that sort of happened that you mentioned was the trading of DeMar DeRozan for Kawhi Leonard. Now we know in hindsight, how it worked out. It was great. We won an NBA championship at the time. People were skeptical because Kawhi is coming off of uh, a season where he's injured, he's got some lower body injuries. Now, when you have the medical records coming in for a player and you know that there's a little bit of a history with injury and we start to hear the terms like load management, obviously load management isn't really something that is specific to this very situation. It's been going on forever. If someone has a sprained ankle or a sore you know, hand or thumb or muscle, you're going to be tentative with easing them into a reasonable program to get back into action. You're going to look at their minutes. You're going to look at the kind of rehab they do, the stress situations that they're going into. Are these the kinds of things that you are consulted on when a player has an injury and they either want to rush to get back or the team wants to get back, uh, get that player back? Are you sort of the middle person to say, hey, 
this is what we see, this is what we recommend. And then does the team just sort of take those orders and consultation and say, okay, now let's come up with a plan as to when we are going to have this player potentially come back in either a couple of days or a couple of weeks or even a couple of months. Yeah. So number one, you know, in, you know, uh, we'll talk in generalities because obviously I can't discuss any individual thing. I mean, we're, we're very fortunate, as I said, right from the beginning, um, we have uh, an excellent orthopedic surgeon as our medical director. Uh, we have a director of sports science who's been uh, doing, who's been in the NBA for years and years. The fellow's name is Alex McKechnie. He's got multiple NBA championship rings because he was with the Lakers before he came to Toronto. Um, you know, we have uh, uh, our head athletic trainer has been in the league for 20 years. They've seen a lot of stuff. Okay. Right. And especially when it comes to bones and joints, like, I mean, that's not my area of expertise. You know, um, they, they'll, uh, uh, they'll go and uh, discuss all, the, you know, different injuries amongst different players. You have to remember that, and we're not talking, not, not just in basketball, but in hockey or football or any other, you know, high performance sport you know, and skiers, whatever. All of these people have had injuries. At some point, they've all had injuries. And so they, you have to look at them. They need to be the, um, the guide as to coming back. The, the final decision is theirs. They, they have to be comfortable with it. We can give them advice. Uh, we can tell them what we think is the best course of action. Um, if they want to get another opinion, we support that because they have to make the one, they have to make the decision that they are comfortable with. Um, the number one thing is we would never put a player out there, uh, who's not ready to play ever. Right. Um, that, uh, no different than in my practice or in my colleagues practice. Uh, the first, the first tenant is to protect the player or protect the individual, give them the best advice, give them the best care, um, allow them to make a good decision. We would, you know, we wouldn't put anybody out there who was not able to play or, uh, you know, or, or if there was a concern, right. That, you know, that's, you know, and that, that can put you at odds with your coaching staff and with your management, but, if a player says he can't go, then he can't go. Um, because I think, I think you're setting yourself up uh, for problems if you're you know, saying they can and they, and they really can't. Um, it, it, you know, my job is to look after the players. Right, plain and simple. This is H. And this is Snaps. And this is your boy Chaps. When you're done with the big old podcast, why don't you go to the fridge Grab one of those nice cold beers, sit down in your favorite chair, kick up your feet, and download the Dad Pops podcast. The podcast where dads are being guys, guys are being dudes, and dudes are being dads. I think sometimes we get over sensationalized when we see some of like these sports movies where, you know, a guy gets like this injury and they want to put themselves back out there and you don't really have the realistic side of it when a, a real doctor who's looking after a team is going to be like, listen, 
this player can't go because they're going to be a danger to themselves. Like they have careers they have. And for some of these guys, they have families and, and, and they're the investment, right? Like they are the player. They are the one who's bringing it in. And, you know, luckily for most of the major sports leagues, they have guaranteed contracts and things that are covered under, you know, their insurances. But if you look at a sport, like maybe the NFL that doesn't have guaranteed contracts, that's a scary thing because, fans and sometimes as you mentioned you know team officials want a player to come back because they're super helpful for their team but it may not be the right timeline and then these guys go out and they blow out another injury because they came back compromised already and now their career is over the the average career span for an athlete is anywhere between three to like six years, depending on your sport. That's a very small window to try to earn a living. And in some cases where guys don't go to college or they don't really have a backup plan, plan, this is it. Like the chips are all in and sometimes it doesn't work out. And that can be a scary thing. I'm sure that's probably your biggest, one of your biggest fears as someone who is looking after the best interest of right. the players. Yeah. Again, and I, I think that's important to stress. And, you know, obviously I can't speak for every other team, you know, and other, every other doctor, you know, for, you know, college teams, whatever. Everybody's approach may be a little bit different. But for us, you know, our, our thing has always been the health of the, the health of the athlete is the most important thing. And as you said, you know, they're the asset and you want to make sure you are, you know, protecting them as much as possible. You try to explain to them, you know, what, what is, um, what possible outcomes are, but they also know their bodies very well. Um, they you know, these guys, gone are the days where they show up on the first day of training camp, uh, working themselves into shape. These guys are going 12 months a year um, and they are working hard and they're working with uh, different trainers and strength coaches. They, they understand what's at stake. And so, you know, whenever we're making, we're, whenever we're helping to guide them, inevitably, you know, you know, they're get they're, they have other people speaking to them as well. And we just, you know, our feeling always is we're happy to explain what, we, what we feel is best. Um, Hopefully they develop a trust in us um, and, and trust in what we're doing so that, um, uh, you know, they can get out there and be successful. Uh, you know, and again, like, I mean, for me, you know, looking from the medical perspective, you know, I also get to know the families and right. the children, right? And, you know, I, I look at it, if they're, if they're calling me, in the middle of the night because of their child, then I've done a good job because I'm, I, you know, they know that they can call me. They, I, they know that they can trust me. Right. Uh, and what, and what I'm saying. So, uh, that, 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 that's the approach that, that, that we look at, uh, you know, with, with the, with, and it can be players, it can be staff, it can be coaches. Like it doesn't matter. I mean, they're, they're, we're all part of the team. Right. And, and we're here and we're here to help, help and guide them all. Because when we were talking earlier about the demands on the team, on the players, you have to remember there are similar demands on the coaching staff, on the training staff, on the front office staff. There are, there, there are so many people behind the scenes that make the product, that splashy, glitzy product. 
you know, but there's so many people involved that don't necessarily get, you know, the glamour or the, or the, or the thanks. And they really have to be recognized because it's, um, you know, they, they work incredibly hard, again, to make sure that the players are successful. And, and think about it. Um, you're in the championship, okay? Uh, there are a lot of distractions going on. You need your security guys and you need your media guys to be able to keep things structured for the players so that they, you know, can maintain their focus on what's at stake, right? So, but those people, you don't hear about how important their role is to keep the, to keep the media happy and for the interviews and the sponsors happy, but also to make sure that the player is getting the right, you know, rest and everything like that. Um, there are a lot of, a lot of people like that. Um, the equipment guys, uh, making sure that, the, you know, everybody has what they need because when you're traveling a lot, um, you have guys, you know, packing up and, and, you know, breaking things down and everything every single day. It's, right. it's a ton of work. And it's yeah. interesting because one of the most underrated jobs, which, you know, as, as I look back now is probably one of the most important ones. It's definitely not a glamorous job whatsoever, but the workers who are in charge of mopping the floor when guys fall down, mm -hmm. have one of the most important jobs, especially when we talk about, you know, player safety, protecting the assets, you know, a, a slippery floor could end someone's career. Right. It could, this, we see these, gentlemen playing basketball on TV and we're looking at them thinking that they're just, you know, they're basketball stars and they're sort of there. You go to a game in person, six, seven and seven feet, 285 pounds is way different than what you see on television. And when these guys hit the ground and they're grimacing and they're in pain, I mean, the bigger you are, the harder you fall is that, is that old saying. So these guys who are constantly cleaning up spills or making sure that the court is safe, I think have one of the most underrated jobs because they are protecting athletes live yeah. in game at a super high physical pace without those guys. I mean, it could, it could get kind of scary and we sometimes see the results yeah. of yeah. what happens when, when they're unable to get to what they need to right away. Right. Right. And listen again, those game operations, people unsung heroes, Right. Sure. And, and what you're talking about, the, these are big guys with big bodies. Okay. It's physics. You know, you have two masses colliding and, and it's a very physical game. It's obviously not the same as football and hockey, but these guys are battling underneath the basket. You don't realize the amount of contact that happens. And, and so, and the types of injuries as a result, you know, you know, an elbow to the head or, you know, or to the eye, finger injuries, things like that. These are the small things uh, that, you know, people always hear about the big breaks and tears, but the small injuries also happen not infrequently, right? And so, you know, it, it, that's why a lot of what we do is preparation, right? Just making sure that we have plans in place should something happen. So emergency preparations uh, to, you know, if something happens on the court, making sure that we have, like we have, um, there's always an ambulance, a uh, dedicated advanced care ambulance 
uh, available to just to the floor, just to the court, to the players. And so every year, you know, before the season starts, we go through a dry run, you know, both at the arena and at our practice facility, making sure that we know uh, who's going to be where so that, you know, when, 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 if a time comes, you know, you're not left scrambling, you actually, you know, all you have to do, you know, you may not notice it, but, you know, somebody who's in, who, who's aware may notice somebody just make a little head movement and an eye roll. And all of a sudden people are coming out, right? I mean, you, you know, the, the challenge is that um, when something like that happens, you know, on a court, um, you have basically 20,000 critics in the stands. And then you have ESPN rolling the tape over and over and over again. So you want to make sure that you're prepared as best you can uh, in order to deal with any of those types of problems if they, if they arise. Um, and, you know, that's just from my perspective. But then, you again, the security guys have all their protocols in place. The building operations people have all their protocols in place. And everything has to work together for a successful product, right? And, um, you know, like, like uh, the glamour of the game is one thing, but there's a lot that goes on um, behind the scenes that makes it possible. And again, you know, from our perspective, uh, you have tremendous leadership from the NBA. Um, you know, throughout the whole COVID crisis, uh, they've been leaders in society in, in dealing with things. Um, uh, you know, they've, you know, uh, they've been leaders in, you know, in dealing with social situations. Uh, they've, they, they, they haven't shied away from things. Um, you know, people will criticize, you know, some decisions that are made and I, and I understand, um, you know, you, you, you have people making decisions as best they can in real time. Um, unfortunately, you know, whereas hindsight's always 2020, but remember, um, when the crisis first started, um, the NBA was the first league to shut down right away. Um, and then other, other leagues followed suit. And if you think about it, uh, by doing what they did, um, and avoiding these mass gatherings in a, in a COVID situation, um, probably saved thousands upon thousands of lives because if they had continued and any of those things became spreader events, well, you know, it mushrooms out. Right. For sure. So I, I want to touch on something that you said when it came to preparedness. Um, and we're going to switch gears a little bit from the NBA. We're going to, or yeah, the NBA, we're going to come back to it just a little bit later, yeah. but Given the circumstances of the last 12 to 14 months, it's obviously been like a very challenging time for everyone across the globe, not just here, but everywhere around the world. I'd love to get your perspective on the impact and pressures that COVID-19 has put on our medical system when facing a pandemic like this. Yeah. Um, again, that, that, that's a, that's an excellent question. First of all, um, my colleagues who have been working in the hospitals and in long-term care facilities, um, what they've been doing has been 
unbelievable. You know, showing up to work every day, the the stressors of that. You're dealing with a uh, very stretched uh, healthcare system. The people who are going into the hospital with COVID, um, you you have the whole spectrum. You know, people aren't going in just with a snotty nose. They're going in and they're sick, right? And they need support. And you're going from a situation where you may just need, you know, physical support to respiratory support to ventilation, right? And when people are looking at the numbers, uh, oh, you know, uh, only five people went into the ICU. The numbers aren't that bad. Well, the problem is when people are going into the ICU, they're not coming out the next day. Right. They're in there for, you know, usually a couple of weeks, right? So with each day, with more, more and more going into an intensive care unit, um, that um, the, the capacities get exceeded. And everything's been about trying to avoid the surge where you overwhelm the system. But the other ramifications are if your resources are, uh, are dealing with something like COVID and let's say your ICU beds are taken up by that, uh, by those individuals, or, or there are fewer beds available, well, you still have the, the normal demands that are placed on a, on a healthcare system for people who have other issues where they may need an ICU bed, right? right. Whether it's a cardiac event, uh, uh, you know, a, uh, a, a, a traumatic injury, a, a surgical issue that you, you know, is very complex and they need extra support. You don't necessarily have those capabilities, you know, to, you, you're not able to look after all those people. So the demand for these other services doesn't go down, but you're not able to service them as well. And so that puts yes. a huge, huge strain. Um, and obviously, I mean, you know, for all those individuals in long-term care facilities who have passed away, I mean, that, 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 that truly is a tragedy, an absolute tragedy. Um, and, you know, we have to do better. You know, th- those are the most vulnerable and we have to do better. Um, the emerges, um, the eMERGE docs, uh, they, nurses, nurse practitioners, you know, clerks, you know, the, the, the eMERGE staff, you know, that's a better way of putting because you have to work as a team there as well. Um, they, they are tremendous. What, the, what they're doing. It really is. Dealing with, you know, these people coming in, plus dealing with the demands uh, of, a, of a reg- the regular demands placed on an eMERGE. And like I said, I worked in an eMERGE for, you know, 20, 20 some odd years. Um, and I know these, these people are so dedicated and work so hard. And now you're throwing in, uh, you know, a lot of unknowns, especially with, you know, with respiratory infections where potentially you're putting yourself at risk. I just want to talk about, cause you're on, on the topic of talking about like our emergency rooms and the medical teams, our daughter, our youngest daughter had a seizure in the early part of the spring. So sort of at like the beginning of the pandemic, but people were still aware of what was going on. And for me, I'm now finding myself as a parent 
worried about two things. Number one, is my kid going to be okay? Why did she have a seizure? It was in the middle of the night. She, she wouldn't stop shaking. So I'm already panicking, number one. <laughs> and number two, now I have to worry that my daughter's going to the hospital, which is where everybody who has like a runny nose or think that they may have, you know, the coronavirus at the time or COVID-19 is at. And now I'm panicking even more because some of these people are in the emergency room and that's where my daughter is going to be. But I'm so thankful that the emergency responders who got to the house, you know, they were already wearing their masks. They took care of my daughter and my wife. They were there for about 18 to 20 hours over the course of being picked up and staying in the hospital. And they really did an amazing job of not only reassuring us that everything was going to be okay, but also making sure that, you know, and reassuring us that our daughter was in the best place to be monitored and to still receive the proper care. That's early COVID. Yeah. That's not that's not thousands of cases every single day in our hospitals. I can only imagine, you know, right now in, in Toronto, like last week or two weeks ago, you know, we're in the three thousands every day, which sure. for people who are going in and check getting checked into hospitals, those are beds that are being taken care uh taken up, which means, you know, more cramming in our hospitals, which means Right. Okay. So a couple things when, you know, um, because, you know, the hospitals, they did, they did learn some stuff from SARS going back, you know, you know, yeah. 15 years, 20 years ago, whatever. Um, you know, so they, they did learn from that. They did put processes in place and things like that. And I, I would actually argue that the eMERGE is probably safer for you to be at than if you're going to Walmart or to uh, or to Loblaws, and no disrespect to them, I'm just saying exposure to the general public because in the eMERGE uh, or in the hospital in general, they uh, they have infection control practitioners and right. infectious disease specialists who are ensuring that there isn't uh, the risk of that uh, of contaminating somebody else. Uh, you know, from somebody who's coming in. So people with respiratory infections are identified right away. They're isolated right away. Um, you know, and, and other people are put into other parts of the department. There are different types of ventilations in, in these departments. Um, one of the bigger problems with the COVID situation is that people who actually need to go to hospital were afraid to go to the hospital. For sure, um, because for the fear that you for you, for the fear that you just voiced, um, and which delay could potentially delay treatment, and so that's why uh, reassuring people that you know the emerges are actually um, you know they are very well run, they are very diligent with infection control and monitoring and making sure that. Not only are you in a safe place, but they're working in a safe place as well, right? Because they're there all the time. You're 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 coming in for a period of time, um, so they they want it safe for themselves as well. Of course, right? Um, and, and you know, I would encourage anybody who still needs feels that they need to go to the emerge to go to the emerge. You know, for you know that care. Um, uh, that care really, you know, should not be questioned or worried about. 
Now, we've talked about this on the podcast before. I had Kelly Rudy on just a few episodes ago who talked about his experience with mental health. And it's probably more important now than maybe ever before, especially in Canada or the northern United States where we're entering our winter months. Things like lockdowns, social distancing, and just general isolation – These measures have affected a large portion of our population, some of which had no prior mental health challenges, and has continued to put pressure on those with pre-existing issues. Can you talk a little bit about mental the mental health impact that COVID nineteen has had just on the general public? Oh, absolutely. Um, Basically, everything you said is so true. Um, All of these factors, you know, we're we're a social people, right? You know, not being able to see your friends on a regular basis is difficult. Um, individuals who live on their own, um, you know, you know, not we talk about bubbles, but they're they're on their own. They're living on their own. Um, that 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 social isolation really is is difficult. Um, people people are worried, and again, we talked earlier about the impact. Um, you know, not just physically, but you know, mentally, you know, uh, you know, um, uh, financially, all of all of these challenges are are you know are immense. And then, you know, you're not necessarily just worried about yourself. You're worried about your children. You're worried about your parents um, or other relatives. You know that that you may uh, you may have close relationships with. You may have friends or or family members that actually got very sick or or passed away. You know. And, you know, when you, when you're not able to be there to help them grieve, you know, or mourn the loss of a loved one, that's very difficult. Um, eh, All of these stressors are huge. People are worried about, you know, when they take, you know, uh, public transit or, or, or ride shares. I mean, um, and then you have people who, you know, who judge others. Right, um, you know, oh, that person's not wearing their mask properly. Well, you know, not everybody's perfect, right? Right. You know, uh, they're wearing a mask. Um, you know, the best thing you can do is protect yourself. Of course. But you know, it, you you really uh, people just have to understand that the emotions that they're feeling are is real. Um, if they, if they are feeling overwhelmed, um, not able to cope, not able to, uh, you know, perform their best that they should reach out to their physician, to a helpline, to a friend, um, you know, they, they should not sweep it under the rug, uh, mental health issues are medical issues that need to be treated with the exact same respect as you would a heart attack, a stroke, diabetes, high blood pressure. You have to treat it with respect. Um, And, you know, I think that people are willing to talk about it more and more, which which is really tremendous because I personally think half the battle is getting somebody to say, you know what, I'm having a problem and I need help. Right. Right. and then hopefully uh, the person that they're confiding in is able to help them and help guide them, right? Of course. Um, so you, we, we really see 
a lot of a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, um, and I think unfortunately it's going it's going to persist until things stabilize, you know, uh, a little bit more. Right. I, I mean, and we even talked about it a little bit earlier when we alluded to some of the stuff that, you know, professional athletes sort of go through. And, you know, Paul George, Kyrie Irving and NFL quarterback Dak Prescott have all spoken about the challenges that they have faced since the onset of COVID-19. Paul George talked a little bit about the NBA bubble and the effect that it had being away from family before they were allowed to have them. Dak Prescott talked about, you know, being away from being able to gather with his family and with friends because they are such, you know, social creatures. With all of these isolation protocols that were implemented last year for the NBA and the NHL with their bubbles, how did you help prepare the players for the mental side of entering into a bubble? You know, we, first of all, the NBA did a tremendous job. Um, they made sure that there were a lot of resources available to people and not just players, but to staff as well um, that were entering the bubble. Uh, they consulted with uh, with different experts before the bubble was even created. You know, I, I know that they, they even talked to the military uh, because, you know, this, you know, going, you know, being in a bubble for three months, they were saying had similarities to being on deployment, you know, away from family and, and in hostile environments and things like that. So uh, they did a tremendous job in making sure that there were supports uh, available. Uh, the team, you know, we also have uh, psychological supports available. Um, you know, we have, uh, there's a sports psychologist, um, you know, that, that's with the team that was regularly in touch with, you know, players and staff. The, they tried to maintain a community with, uh, with families that weren't in the bubble. So to make sure that, you know, families remain connected and there were, uh, group events. Yes, it was by Zoom or whatever, but you know they try. They tried their best. It, it was it was definitely uh, very difficult. It really was. And again, um, you know, right now uh, with with the ongoing challenges as well, it's it's it it really it's difficult. But there there are. Um, there are there are plans in place. The NBA has a a full uh, you know health and wellness focus for uh, players and staff. Um, you know, and yeah, you, you also learn as you go along. But it's also making sure that uh, people know that you're approachable. And of course, everything, any of that stuff is always you know confidential. Whether whether we're talking with the team in my office or whatever. Um, it's all confidential. So you try and help them and get them the resources that they may need and, and deal with it as appropriate. You know, every, every team has a, um, you know, has a, uh, like a mental health program as well. So uh, like uh, similar to a medical emergency action plan, a mental health emergency action plan. And when, when you have these professional athletes talk about their challenges that they've faced it gives it gives other people permission to say you know well you know what you know he's having that well you know what you know it, it, i'm i'm experiencing it too right so it it opens the conversation and that's what you need 
you know, you, you, you need to allow people to be comfortable, um, you know, voicing that they have a concern and not feel that somebody's going to be judging them, right? Because it affects them greatly. For sure. And now, I mean, speaking of the NBA restart, everyone who watched on TV just got to see sort of the NBA is going to be at Disney World. It's just going to happen. All of a sudden, teams start playing all of these games and we sort of just get back into the business of basketball. But prior to resuming, in accordance with the NBA's health and safety protocols, you were part of a team that had to recreate the measures that the team already had in place in Toronto, but pretty much start from scratch when you guys made the trip out to Naples. What was the biggest challenge that you encountered during that time? <laughs> the biggest. Uh, there, 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 were, there were numerous ones. Um, well, first of all, literally you are packing up and you are moving everything down there. You had to identify the places that you were going to, and you had to identify the support uh, companies that would be needed in order to ensure that you are disinfecting things properly. You're, you know, the, um, uh, the gyms are being done uh, in accordance with NBA policy. Uh, you want to make sure that uh, the hotel uh, is following sa- you know, safety protocols. Um, you have to be very careful about common areas. So, number one, when we went down, it, wa- it wasn't just me. I mean, there were, there were numerous people, again, uh, all of whom have important roles in the organization. We had... Uh, one of the uh, building operations people uh, from OVO come down because, you know, he looks after OVO and the cleaning and everything, like making sure that that happens. Well, we needed his expertise in order to ensure that the people that were helping, helping clean things down there were looking after everything. So um, we have, you know, there's a dietitian who works with, with, with our, our team, a, sport, a sports uh, nutrition, nutritionist dietitian who helped with the food services, uh, making sure that we were following certain protocols, you know, you know with respect to food delivery, uh, making sure that uh, the, the environment uh, was appropriate. Uh, our operations people made sure that we had the space that was needed. You know, you're trying to maintain uh, six foot distances. Well, you know, we were in a ballroom and there's like 42 people in the 20,000 square foot ballroom because you have six foot tables and only two people at a table, right? (laughs) So on opposite ends. So, you know, it, it really, and then of course we had to transport all our equipment down there too, like everything because, you know, we're, we're going to a, a facility that doesn't have all of the training tables and everything like that. Um, so the organization made a huge commitment to transport a lot of equipment down there, uh, supplies down there, because again, we were going down at a time where you didn't know what you were going to have available to you. So you better take what you're going to need for a while and then start to source while you're down there. So there was a lot of stuff that we brought down with us. And again, I have to give credit to, you know, everybody in the organization 
because they everybody pulled together and did a tremendous job. The and then of course you, you know the all of this is about mitigating risks. You're not going to prevent exposures, as we know. You you can't. You have to try and minimize what the risks are as best you can. And you have to have the buy-in of everybody, right? And, you know, similar to you, you, you have to explain why we need people to wear masks, why you want to make sure uh, you're, you're keeping distances and you reinforce and you educate and you give them the knowledge that you, that you have. And you remind them that just because what we're saying today may be different than what we, what we tell you tomorrow, it doesn't mean we don't know what we're doing. It means we're learning as we're going along. And it, it, we're dealing with a situation that we've never had to deal with before, with a, with a virus that had never been seen before, you know, this particular one um, and how it behaves. And so you have to let people understand that the challenges, you know, we're, we're giving guidance to the best of knowledge that we have. Right. And, um, and, and it does change. And we're learning every day. There's something new. Now on that same topic where you pick up and, and you've got to go to, to Naples and get ready for the NBA restart, you know, the 2020 season finishes and everyone thinks, okay, you know, we're going to hopefully get back to a little bit of normal for the following season. Well, the Canadian government has decided that due to their international travel restrictions, the Toronto Raptors won't be playing out of Toronto. They'll actually be playing out of Tampa, Florida. So you've already picked up once from Toronto, taken everything to, to Naples to do this. What challenges did the organization face now relocating to Tampa? And what protocols did you have to put in place for the team at Amelie Arena? So on one hand, the experience that we had going to Naples really helped us out going down to Tampa. Okay, because a lot of, a lot of what we... Uh, had to do, uh, we were doing again. So you have to understand that, you know, the, the team was working with all three levels of government. Um, and it's not, it, it's not an easy decision to say yes or no. Right. Sure. Um, the, the big, cha- you know, the, the big challenge obviously is how, you know, could it be done safely? Um, could you have people coming across the border, uh, you know, safely and minimizing the risk to others, right? Um, the, so could it be done? Sure, it could. Uh, how would the optics be? You know, probably not so good if, um, if we're telling others that you can't. Um, you know, so let, 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 let's be realistic um, that that, you know, comes into play as well. For sure. uh, but it's not just a team coming up to play and they're going from charter plane to uh, secluded, you know, hotel to secluded arena back to charter play. You know, there's limited, uh, there's limited exposure to the public, but for our guys and our staff coming back and forth over the border, it means that basically they're in quarantine the whole year. Right. That's that, 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 that's a challenge. Right. Um, so that, you know, I mean, I, I understand that the, the difficulties that, uh, that the public health, you know, officials were having 
the, the federal health officials were having trying to come up with with a, a good solution. But unfortunately, um, you know, timelines being what they were, you know, the team has to make a decision. And you can't you can't just say, okay, uh, they said no, okay, we're gonna start planning tomorrow. You have to be planning as you're going along. And you know, reading in the paper, there were always different cities that always seemed to pop up as to um, as to what uh, uh, where we may be headed. Um, the decision for Tampa, you know, I'm not sure when it was made, but when it was made, uh, everything had to start happening. And what they've created down there is unbelievable. It really is. Um, you know, we we were staying at one hotel, uh, the Marriott in Tampa. Uh, while the um, while the JW Marriott was being constructed across the road, it, it wasn't yet open, but they created our whole training facility there. So the, in in the ballrooms, uh, they have two full size courts. Uh, there's a whole uh, the whole training area. It, it really what they were able to achieve. Offices were set up you know, a weight room and everything, you know, the equipment room, like it, it really is amazing what they did in such a short period of time. And they really need to get a lot of credit for what they did and how well they did it. Um, Amelie arena, well, it's how it houses the, um, uh, the Tampa Bay lightning. So, you know, it's similar to any other multi-use facility. Uh, it's pretty, it's pretty similar. Right, but you know the the training facility that they created uh, at the JW Merritt is um, is really quite something. Um, but again, it's still not their home, right? Of course. And of course. one of the challenges is you have everybody relocating, having to find housing, having there, there's a lot of, a lot of different pressures, um, you know, that people are facing. Now I got two last things to get you out of here because mm-hmm. I know we're running a little long on time. But one thing that we have talked about, and you even mentioned you were uh, very passionate about, and that's vaccines. So it's mm-hmm. obviously a big topic right now as governments across the world begin to offer it for COVID-19. Although there have been a lot of people who have been skeptical to taking it, citing negative side effects that they've read about, how long it took to develop, and whether enough testing was done prior to it being mass produced. Where do you stand on vaccines as a whole? And would you recommend people getting the COVID-19 vaccine? Um, so in general, you know, just I am definitely a pro-vaccinate person. I believe in the science. I've seen the science. Um, there are diseases that we used to see regularly 30 years ago that we haven't seen in ages. Young children, for example, um, you know, when, when I started my training, there wasn't a pneumonia vaccine for children. There wasn't a hemophilus vaccine for children at the time. Um, and those yet, you know, there were kids who would develop you know, meningitis, they would develop uh, other types of severe infections, uh, some, some who would succumb to them, okay? You know, in, I haven't seen them in years, okay? Not to say that they've completely disappeared, but, you know, I, I'd work a, a shift and emerge, a night didn't go by where you weren't seeing one or two of them. Well, I haven't seen them in years, okay? Chickenpox, 
um, common childhood illness, okay, you know, 20 years ago, okay, with the advent of the vaccine, okay, I'll, I'll see maybe one case, you know, a year, every two years. I, some of my trainees have never seen a case of chicken pox. They've, they've heard about it, but they haven't seen a case. So vaccines do work. We've basically eradicated smallpox. All of the resurgences of illnesses that you may see, you know, whether it's measles outbreaks or mumps outbreaks are in unvaccinated people. Now, vaccines may also, uh, uh, your immunity levels will vary. And yeah, you, you may need booster shots, okay? Right. Well, you get a tetanus shot every 10 years, okay? How bad is that, right? Uh, people, people get immunized against hepatitis, you know, hepatitis B, hepatitis A, without thinking twice, okay? What you have to remember is that all of these vaccines, you know, have been developed based on knowledge that they've learned from prior vaccines. With the COVID vaccine, number one, um, there's been a lot of funding that has put, been put towards the development. Usually, you know, usually what happens is a company decides to develop a vaccine for it. They're funding it themselves based on what future sales may be, right? Um, governments are pre-buying doses of vaccines that aren't yet proven, okay? You know, but what that does is it allows the companies to develop them. Every stage of a vaccine process has been followed. They have multiple stages. Stage one, you know, for safety. Stage two, for dosing. Stage three, for a broad, you know, a broader, um, uh, a broader benefit. Okay, um, and usually it starts stage one. You evaluate. You get the funding. You go to stage two. You evaluate. Go to stage three. Well, they're doing the stages. Well, one is going on, they're starting the next stage, okay? Usually after each stage, you are advising the regulatory bodies about what's happening, and then, then they review it and move forward. They're being advised as it's going along. So right. again, it's, it's saving time, okay? You're not skipping steps. You, you know, the timing has worked so much better. Um, there have been... Uh, you know, the trials that have shown the benefits, well, the ones that are approved right now, the Pfizer and the Moderna one, you know, showing, you know, 95% reduction uh, in disease. And in fact, there was, a, there was a, something in the New York Times just recently saying, we're actually underselling the, the benefits of the vaccine. Um, there were studies showing that, I think in the studies, there were like 30,000 people. Um, how many people got severe COVID? One. Right. You know, you know, it, it, so, I mean, the benefits are there. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, there will be some people who do have side effects. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, it does happen. Um, you know, you, but if the, the risk of a vaccine is, you know, let's say one in 10,000. Um, okay. But look at it, look at other risks that people face on a daily basis. Sure. Um, uh, you know, the, to me, to me, there's no question about it. Oh, well, we don't know how long the immunity is going to last. Okay. So you get a booster shot. Okay. We're, we're learning, we're learning about it. We, you know, uh, yes, viruses mutate all the time. 
That's why, that's why they stay around. They've been around a lot longer than mankind has been. Uh, they do mutate, but these vaccines can also be adjusted as well. Uh, to, but studies are showing right now that you know, these other strains are still sensitive or the vaccines are still effective against it. Um, I, you know, so to me, there's no doubt that the vaccine is beneficial. Um, and I 100% uh, would tell people to get it. I've been fortunate, you know, in my line of work, I've gotten my first dose. Okay. And uh, I wish we had more doses to give to everybody because I would, in a heartbeat, um, you know, you know, you know, get people to do it. Absolutely. Um, you know, especially, um, you know, older individuals, uh, where the death rates, you know, climb as we get older and for young people, um, you, you know, you, you hear, oh, that, oh, it's not as bad in young people. Well, no, actually there are a lot of young people who get very sick with this. Uh, they may not die but they get very sick and the long-term sequelae of the virus, there may still be things that we don't know yet. Right. You know, yeah. So yeah, avoiding it. And then more importantly, well, you have a parent, right? Your parent, you know, you, you may be the, the vector of concern to your parent. So um, I, I think that the, the vaccines are a tremendous advance you know, I'm amazed at how well they've done it, you know, how quickly they've done it. Yes, they have. But that's been, that's been science. It's all based in science. And again, I, I alluded to uh, earlier with, with our initial conversation was that when I, when, I, when I look to the infectious disease people to help me with the most difficult patients with different infections and stuff like that, I look to them for their expertise and their guidance, their knowledge. Um, and I trust them. And here, those are the same people that are saying, get the shot, right? Um, why, 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 would, why would I question them? You know, these same people who I trust, you know, with, with the information to care for you, why would I not listen to them now? I mean, uh, get the shot. It's, you know, you, you'll hear about those cases, you know, where somebody says, oh, I had this bad, I heard this person had a bad reaction or that person had a bad reaction. You're right but you don't hear about the million other people who got the vaccine without an issue, right? And those are the numbers you're looking at. Anytime you talk about vaccinations, you always will have the people who speak the loudest are the people that are heard the most. And you have more people that are just opposed to things than agreeing with them. I mean, like you said, you know, vaccines have saved billions of lives throughout time and eradicated diseases but if you have a social media influencer or an actor or a singer who has a large following and they say they're anti-vaccine well then the herd mentality is we're just gonna you know pound our chest and say no vaccine no vaccine no vaccine right. and, and we've seen that throughout history right. uh, we have a friend who had a baby in in august of last year and unfortunately contracted covid within the last three weeks and the doctors at the hospital said that the effects of COVID is going to remain in the lungs of this child and this baby for, you know, the next few months up to even and longer than a year. Right. And for me, that scares the shit out of me because my wife and I are pregnant. We're going to have 
another baby in May. And that's the last thing that I want to hear right now, because as you mentioned, a lot of people are like, oh, it's more of the older population that are getting sick. Us young people don't need to worry about it. But if we are the ones who potentially carry this and give Mm -hmm. it to a small child, I mean, they do not have the same necessary fighting chance that that you or as someone who's been vaccinated or me who hasn't been vaccinated, who's in decently good health may have. Yeah, but there are young people of all age groups who have died from this. Of course. Right. Um, And people who don't have other pre-existing conditions. 400,000 people have died in the U.S. because of COVID, right? You know, thousands of people in Canada have died, you know, because of COVID. Um, you know, I, I said right at the beginning, my, you know, I'm a pro-vaccinate. You know, that, that is my bias. I have no problems if somebody wants to ask questions about the vaccine they may be hesitant about it, but let me explain to you because most of those people want to know, they want to make an informed decision, right? And I'm all for that. Um, I find that those that are, you know, giving out false information, that I have an issue with because that 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 is, you know, um, you know, you you have your belief you don't want to you don't want to take the shot okay that's that's fine that that that's your decision but you know if you're going to tell other people based on false information and 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 fear-mongering otherwise i'm sorry i i don't i don't have i don't have um uh tolerance for that um i think i think it's very important to ask questions you know you know what 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 how was it trying to explain how how were they developed why is this safe um you know those those are all real good questions and you know making sure that people are comfortable with it but i I, as i say to any of my patients i wouldn't tell you to do something that i wouldn't do myself i've had my shot right and um you know yeah, it hurt for it hurt for a day. Uh, you know, I mean, people get the the shingles vaccine. They don't think of, think twice about the shingles vaccine. Twenty percent of people have a flu like illness with it. We explain that. Okay, yeah, they expect it. Um, people get you know hepatitis shots. They get a sore arm. Yeah. Oh, but they're going traveling. That's why they want their hepatitis vaccine. Right. There's, <laughs> well, there's, there's, a, there's a reason and there's a benefit for them as right. to why they're going to go ahead and get it. Right. Right. And now, and now the COVID vaccine. So let's say there is a mutation, okay? And you get a booster shot. You get an annual COVID shot, just like an annual flu shot. Right. It's not, you know, it, you know it, it's not that it doesn't work. You know, you know thing, thing, knowledge evolves, right? And, right? and we'll see over time. But, um, you know, again, you know, all the vaccines over time, our immunities do change, okay? And that's why we do get booster shots, Something we've already been doing and something that we'll likely continue to do. Now, the last thing I want to get you out of here on is something of a, on, on a lighter note. And in a, pre, in a previous episode, I spoke with Doug Elland, creator of HBO's Entourage, whose show really brought to the light the importance of an entourage, whether it's traveling or going out for dinner or even attending sporting events or events together. 
when you're traveling during the NBA playoffs, who makes up your entourage and what do you guys like to do during your downtime? Um, well, I, I have to tell you, you know, it's really enjoyable in the postseason because, you know, I go out for dinner with, um, with, with the broadcasters. So I go out for dinner with, uh, you know, uh, Matt Devlin, you know, uh, Jack Armstrong, uh, Leo Routens, Rod Black, um, you know, my, my colleague, uh, Dr. Marks, um, you know, our, you know, director of sports science. I mean, you go out with different groups, but all of these guys, they have some, the experiences that they have in life, you know, are different than mine. And just hearing, hearing everybody's stories is just great. I mean, I, I said that we've, um, you know, you meet a lot of interesting people, you know, and one of the most fascinating people that I've met in, in this whole basketball journey is Wayne Embry. He's our senior advisor to the president, a gentleman who's, you know, been through, been in basketball for, God, 50 years, you know, plus, you know, you know, a, a trailblazer throughout and just, you know, you know, obviously he's older than me, but hearing his stories, learning from him and just, well, you know, we, we've had, you know, all of us, we've had such great times in all these different groups. It's really, that, that's what makes it enjoyable. It's, a, it's very stressful, but going and having, you know, having dinner with these guys and just hearing them go at each other is really, it's quite enjoyable because I'm sitting here going, as I said, one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> Matt, for the record, Matt called you the old non-basketball guys. So that's, that's how Matt sort of explained it uh, to me. But it seems like, listen, whether you're partying in the VIP section or you're just, you know, having an enjoyable dinner, it really seems as though, you know, you love what you're doing and Obviously, that's extremely important, you know, for the team that you look after and for your family practice that you look after. Uh, just in the in the brief conversations that we've had, I really am thankful for the conversation, the advice, and the knowledge really that you have been able to provide. I'm sure a lot of people will sort of take out what I've taken out as well. So let let me do. You you, met, you, met, you mentioned Matthew, okay, my, my son. So. You know, again, when, when I started with the team, um, you know, you know, I, I remember coming home uh, at night, and I, you know, I, I said to my, I said to my, my, my sons at the time, I said, so guys, I just want you to know, I was just offered a job to work with the Toronto Raptors, and Matthew, Matthew goes, this is the coolest thing that's ever happened to our family. <laughs> and and then he goes and it's not fair he goes i go what he goes well most parents live vicariously through their children and i have to live vicariously through my father he goes it's not fair i go matthew you're like 11 years old where did you learn the word vicarious (laughs) anyways listen you know i want to thank you as well for inviting me on to your show uh you know, obviously, uh, it's been it's been my pleasure to to sit and talk with you for the last hour or so. And um, you know, it's you know just 
as a final thing for, um, you know, for your audience, you know, you know, I am Dr. Howard Petroff. I am the assistant medical director for the Toronto Raptors. I also am, you know, a family physician and one of the founding physicians uh, of a family health team in Toronto or in Pickering, actually. And that's uh, one of my other jobs as well. And I, I want to thank you for inviting me on the big old podcast. Uh, <laughs> it, it's uh, I've never been on a podcast before. So this is a big one for me. No, it's been great. Um, I hope your I hope your listeners do enjoy uh, this podcast and the big O. Well, it's one it's one I'll remember for sure. Doctor Petrov, it has been an absolute honor and a pleasure speaking with you today. And I hope you know maybe down the line you come back in the future we can talk some more vaccines, talk a little Raptors, and talk about any fun new experiences you may get from you know, post-COVID NBA basketball. Um, for all of the listeners, The Big O Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast with full episodes of video up on YouTube. Uh, thank you everyone for watching and listening. We'll see you next time.